Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode 50 Years of Greece, Part 1. It may be hard for some of us to believe, but this past Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2022, marked the 50th anniversary of the New York opening of the musical Grease at the Eden Theater on 2nd Avenue. And next week, June 7th, marks the 50th anniversary of Grease's official move to Broadway. My guests today are that show's original producer, Ken Weissman, and original director, Tom Moore, who, along with that show's original Rizzo, Adrian Barbeau, are the editors of a new book entitled Grease, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, Stories from the Broadway Phenomenon That Started It All. Ken Weissman is the Tony Award-winning producer who made his Broadway debut as the producer of the play And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little, and in addition to Grease, went on to produce Over Here starring the Andrews Sisters and the long-running plays Agnes of God and Torch Song Trilogy. Tom Moore is a leading theater, film, and television director whose work on Broadway includes his debut with Grease, Over Here, Moon Over Buffalo starring Carol Burnett, and Night Mother. Their new book is made up of the personal, behind-the-scenes memories of the show's creative and production teams, as well as the scores of cast members from Greece's original cast, five national tours, and its record-breaking eight-year run on Broadway. In this episode, you'll hear how Ken discovered the show in a ramshackle community theater production in Chicago— why Ken chose Tom to direct the show instead of Michael Bennett, and how Tom came very close to turning the show down. You will also hear how they discovered and cast more future stars than probably any other musical in Broadway history, including Barry Bostwick, John Travolta, Patrick Swayze, Richard Gere, and many, many more. Here we go! Ken Weissman and Tom Moore, thank you so much for joining me today on Broadway Nation. So great to have you here to talk about 50 years of Greece. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you. It's nice to be here, and it's hard to believe it's 50 years. That's my first question. If someone had told you when you both started working on this project 50 years ago that 50 years later, people would still be regarding Greece as one of the most popular and famous Broadway musicals of all time, and that it would continue to take up what I think is a tremendous amount of space in the American cultural imagination today, or that you would be writing a book about it that people would want to read 50 years later, would you have had any concept that that would be possible? None. None whatsoever. I did think when I saw the show in Chicago and I saw my whole yearbook come to life and I just fell in love with the idea and thought that Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey really had the talent to transform that little gem that was being shown on weekends into a full-scale Broadway musical. But I was thinking in terms of if we did our job right, audiences could embrace it and we might have a Broadway hit, like run three, four years like the hits did in those days or make a nice profit for the investors, have a couple national tours. And uh, if we're lucky, maybe a movie version, but not too many musicals on Broadway always get that. So that was sort of what I envisioned, the fact that it would take off and become a worldwide phenomenon and that people, little kids today, still talk to me like we all did this yesterday. And I went to a thing at Pace University right before the pandemic. They showed the the sing-along version of Greece. And so all the parents brought their kids dressed up three and four-year-olds. This is right before the pandemic, dressed up as Rizzo and Sandy. and There was no way to envision that, really. Ken and Mike Zine had the vision. I was just trying to hang on for each week at a time, maybe each day at a time, maybe each hour, because we were struggling there. There was no time for me, anyway, to even imagine a larger future. I just wanted to open and run so that it would not be considered a failure. That was really my major goal at the time. And you may have read in the book, but I spent a great deal of time convincing the cast that everything was going to be okay because all of their friends and families were saying, you need to find another job. Don't think this is going to run. That was my job. So let's go back to the very beginning, August 1971. And there's this production at the Kingston Mines Theater in Chicago, written by Warren Casey and Jim Jacobs. And one of the things that jumped out to me in the book was this drunken conversation that they have at a party about creating a musical. And what's amazing is this sort of the entire idea of the show is sort of conceived in that one conversation, including the title. Yeah, basically what they told me when I met them that first night, they were at this party, but it wasn't really the idea of writing a whole full like 50s musical or something. They came up with the idea for Beauty School Dropout and everybody went nuts. And nobody had thought about that kind of music or anything about the 50s at this time in 71, because the 60s made it look like anything from the 50s, Elvis Presley even, was from the Civil War. So much change had happened. And everybody thought that they should write a musical. They were affiliated with this community theater, the Kingston Mines, which was located in the basement of a trolley barn. It wasn't a real theater. It was just cement floor and they used newspapers to sit on and so forth. But they wrote their first Grease version for that because they had access to it. They ran it on the weekends that summer of 71. And how did you get there to see it? What prompted you to go? I got a call from my college roommate, also a friend from uh, high school, Phil Markin, he had become a dentist and was taking an orthodontic course uh, in Chicago that summer. And he called me, he said, my wife and I went to this little community theater, this amateur production, but it was all about the drapes and the drapettes that hung out in the back of our high school. Because in Baltimore, where we went to high school, we didn't call them greasers, we called them drapes and drapettes. He knew I was looking for a new show. I had done two shows by then. He said, I think you should come out and see it. So I checked around New York and I found one person who said, yeah, it's some amateur thing they're doing on weekends, but I don't know much about it. And just at that point, Phil called back and he said, the more I think about this, the more I think you should come out and see it. 
Now, Phil was the ultimate pessimist. You know, in high school, college, he never had a good word to say about anything. It got to the point where he couldn't say a good word about anything because he didn't want to ruin his reputation. So when he called back that enthusiastic, I thought, you know what? I better get on the plane. So I did. He and his wife, Susie, picked me up at the airport. We went to the Kingston Mines. We walked in. I looked up and I saw the brown painted scenery that the kids probably had painted themselves. You could see the drip marks everywhere. And I remember thinking to myself, God, when I was 11, 12, and 13, 14, putting on shows in my base, We used to paint brown paper, but we didn't have drip marks. When the show began, I saw my entire yearbook coming to life. I knew every one of those characters. And as the show went on, even though it was mostly book and you could go out and get a hamburger, you wouldn't miss anything. Some of the songs were terrific. We brought them to Broadway, like You Just Go Drop Out, of course. We Go Together, Grease Lightning, and others. Some were clinkers, but, you know, this was what I considered their out-of-out-of-out-of-out-of-town tryout. I met with Jim Warren that night, and I said, yeah, there are problems here, and this and that and the other, but I believe that you guys have the talent to turn this little gem into a full Broadway musical. I said, if you want to move to New York, I'll work with you. We've got to sort of get a script going that we could show a director. And they said, okay. I later found out after the show was a success, Jim Jacobs said to me, when we told our friends that we were going to move to New York and that you were going to produce our show, they said, don't do it. Don't let those New York people ruin your play. We see who got the last laugh on that one, Jim Warren and us. <laughs> exactly. And your partner, Maxine Fox, flew out the next day to see it? As yes, well. she flew out the next day. And I had to come back the next morning. I couldn't stay and see it again. Maxine flew out that same day, saw the show, came back and said that she understood why I got so excited. Because she went to the same high school as I did. Wow. You know? So we were three years different in age, but they were all recognizable to her, too. And of course, we found out that they were recognizable to anybody who ever went to high school and had a yearbook. Now, we were not thinking, and I don't think Jim and Warren were either, we were not thinking of any of that. It's the journalists and the critics who tell you what you did, you know, what the underlining reasons were. But as time went on, we could see. Everybody had this feeling about going through puberty, being in high school, fitting in, not fitting in. Little kids, you know, related to it because it was their older brothers, sisters, or what they were going to be. It's like a rite of passage. So, Tom, what brought you into the project? How did you get involved? Before I tell you about that, which, of course, changed my life, let me just talk about Jim Jacobs and the term of the idea. He's an amazing raconteur. And when I was talking to him and getting these interviews for the book, it really was an impulsive idea at that drunken party to start. And it's not really clear in the book. Warren was, so what's it going to be about? You guys never did anything. It's going to be about somebody standing on a corner watching with models of car go by and calling them out. And it was that sort of thing. And it was just like many creative things. It was an impulse hitting another impulse that then ballooned. And then they just kept moving, much like we did when we were putting the show together. You just keep moving and eventually it became something. But they talk about in that original Kingston Mines production and Mary Lou Henner, the original Marty in that, who was like later in our show, and Jim Canning, the original duty, who was in our show, they would come in and on the piano were these stacks of music. And Warren and Jim would say, why don't you try this one? And they would just hand out music almost arbitrarily, try this, and then try a few lines from the scenes. And then that's eventually how they cast it. But I love the whimsy of the idea that has now become this juggernaut that has made so many people happy around the world. And as Ken said, it's this universality. And to me, I always 
always say it's the universality of the characters. We recently did an interview with Dominic Cavendish, who's the critic of the London Telegraph. And one of the things that came up that Jim said was that it's all about the first times, the first times of everything. And that's universal. And everybody can relate to that. But talking about Ken and Maxine's vision and Ken, I mean, this is one of the great good luck stories, I think, in the annals of theater. And it certainly was profoundly different in mine because I'd come out of Yale drama. I was uh, directing a couple of things, one at University of State, University of New York, another one at Brandeis University. I was looking around, but I'd always wanted to do a play that a playwright and I, who had worked together at Yale, were interested in that he had written. The great Wynne Handman at the American Place Theater gave us the church to do a presentation for one day. I think it was on a Sunday, which was an amazingly generous thing for him. He didn't know us. He didn't have anything at stake in this. And I finally got to talk to him, by the way, right before he died. I noticed in New York, they're about to have a memorial service for him. But it's just those gestures one makes along the way that change people's lives. Because at that presentation of that production, which was about a quadriplegic and a nurse, two characters, one who didn't move, and the only music was Brandenburg Concertos of Bach. Based on all of those things, Ken Weisman and Maxine came to see that production. And even though they didn't think the play was something that they could do professionally that would have commercial possibility, we hit it off enormously. And they really appreciated what I had done. We chatted, we talked. It was great, but it was over. I went off to do my thing. They went off to do their thing. I came out to California to work for Gordon Davidson as his assistant at the Mark Day Perform. Ken Weisman comes out, calls ahead and says, could we have lunch? We have lunch at the Music Center here in Los Angeles. Supposed to last an hour. It went on for three, I think, where we talked about backyard circuses, uh, magician shows in our basement. And it just was an immediate connection. Then life continued to move on. I came out to California again. I was at the American Film Institute, having decided theater was probably not for me. I get a call right as I was making my student film saying some producers want to talk to you up in the office. I go up in the office and they say, we think you'd be right for Greece. Would you fly back to New York? We'd like to talk to you about it. It was astounding, even as a moment in time there. As I tell you this, I can imagine us in the American Film Institute. It's the old Doheny estate. So there I am in this grand building and I've received this word. And I remember going back to my fellow students and saying, I don't know. It's this thing called Greece. What do you think that that could be. I flew to New York and the rest kind of is history. But, but there's a little more to it because when I spoke to Jim and Warren, I told them the one thing that they had done 300% correctly was the fact that they had this authenticity. You did not think you were watching actors. You just took for granted you were watching the real thing and that when it was over, they stayed in the same outfits and they went out for hamburgers and an old jalopy. And I said, that has to be kept. Every choice we make from director, choreographer, et cetera, et cetera, designers, has to be toward making our Broadway audiences believe that these are not actors. I didn't think about it at the time that I was talking to Jim and Warren. It had been three years earlier when I had seen Tom's play and then we had met for that lunch. But the thing that got me about that play, and it was his agent, also the author's agent, who had contacted Maxine and me because we had been working for other producers. I'd been working for George Abbott. Maxine was casting director on Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. We were both from Baltimore. We didn't know each other there. I knew her parents. She knew my parents, but we didn't know each other. A friend from high school here in New York introduced us. 
we both were sort of like kids from the country uh, wanting to be producers. And so we kind of teamed up there. That was why we took the ad. Can you use two producers with these credits? We put down the shows we worked on. And Ellen Newall, Tom's agent and the playwright's agent, called and said, would you come and see this play that they're doing on the weekend? So we went, welcome to Andromeda. And we went. I had to keep pinching myself that these were actors because total, total belief, you know, in who they were. And also two characters, one's paralyzed. So only the nurse was mobile. And Tom had gotten such wonderful sight gags and comedy out of all of this tragic play. I was very impressed. And that provoked me to mention to Ellen that I was going out to LA and wanted to have lunch with Tom. And then we did Miss Rudin drinks a little and Fortune Men's Eyes. And now we're talking about Greece. Jimmy Warren's agents, of course, because that's the way it works, started pushing all these people to be directors. And oddly enough, there were clients of ICM where Jimmy Warren's agents were. And it was a little frustrating. And then at one point, it suddenly hit me, wait a minute. Tom Moore. I thought of Pat Birch watching the show in Chicago because when she did the Nobody Knows or... Uh, me Nobody Knows. Me Nobody Knows. Those kids, you didn't believe they were performers. You thought that she went up to the Bronx and grabbed them somehow. So real. And yet they danced and they sang. And I knew that she was very good at making actors who could move look like real dancers. And we weren't going to have any chorus. You would get to know these characters and that would be it. They'd have to do everything. The Pat that Ken is referring to here is Patricia Birch, who was a replacement for the role of anybody's during the original run of West Side Story and has since gone on to choreograph 20 Broadway musicals, including The Me Nobody Knows, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, A Little Night Music, Over Here, Candide, Pacific Overtures, They're Playing Our Song, and Parade. She recreated and expanded her Broadway choreography for the movie version of Grease and then directed the film Grease 2. So I thought of her while I was sitting there. And as a matter of fact, she was the first person that we went to see when we came back from Chicago. We had this moth-eaten tape and had some of the songs on it. The band, nothing was written down, so they winged it every night. So you were lucky to hear the lyrics. But anyway, it was her husband, Bill Becker, founder of Janice Films, who said, Pat, this could be a hit. Because she didn't know what she was listening to. It was very hard of you, you know, on their guitar. But she said to me, but how can you come to me? You don't have a director. Always it's the producer and the director that choose the choreographer, the director has the input. So what if the director you get doesn't want to work with me? I said, Pat, any director that we want to have for this show that doesn't want to work for you is the wrong director. And she was in. And then the next thing was, who's going to find that director that thinks she's the right choreographer? I started very quickly. I thought of, hey, Tom Moore, welcome to Andromeda. That's the answer. So that's when we contacted him and Tom came in, wanted to meet Pat, and they hit it off fabulously. And then the other was to meet Jim and Warren. We went to Joe Allen's for lunch. And Jim is very very extroverted. He's got a great personality, you know, and you just sort of were taken in by him. Warren was very, very low-key, and he would just sit there. He had this stare that would go right through you, and he'd watch you as if he's going to catch you at something. And he carried his dramatist guild contract in his briefcase at all times, <laughs> from, from the auditions to the rehearsals to the previews. Not the kind of guy that you're going to naturally just start talking to. And, of course, that's what happened. Jim was out there. He was fun, and he's asking the right questions, and he and Tom are hitting it off. But Warren's doing his thing. So when it was over, we drove Tom to the airport. And this was the first crisis. Tom said, you know, I hated those greaser kids when I was in high school. I don't think I'm right for this. I said, Tom, why don't you reread the script on the plane and just think about it. Yes, you're the one that will make these characters likable. That's one of the things that you can bring to this. 
So anyway, he gets on the flight. We go back and have a call from Warren. He doesn't really like Tom. He doesn't think maybe he's the right one. Now, it wasn't hard to know what happened. I said, okay, Warren, I think he's the right one. Pat would love working with him. And you've already said that you adored Pat. Can we do this? I will bring him back. And we will have another lunch, just like the last one. And talk to him. Ask questions. See how you feel afterwards. Meanwhile, Tom lands at LAX, runs to a telephone and calls and says, did I talk you out of hiring me? Because I guess after rereading it on the plane, he thought differently. So I said, no, you haven't, but you have to come back to New York because we have to do another lunch with Jim and Warren. And this time, Tom, please focus on Warren. So, of course, he came back, he charmed the pants off of Warren, Warren, and he had a great discussion, as well as Jim. And afterwards, they both said, yeah, let's go with Tom. So uh, producers do a lot of things besides just raising the money. You have to raise the money just to open the store, but then who's going to put the store together? I can't help but be the director. So I'm thinking, did Ken hit this moment that's in the book? Did that moment happen? (laughs) I'm trying to stay focused, and what I'm doing is making a list of things. First of all, Ken, these were not sight gags in Welcome to Andromeda. That's the play with the closet. I'm sorry, but I I laughed at her movements and stuff. Bring out the humor in a tragic situation, but they were not sight gags. Okay. we even tried not to have side gags in Greece. We gave up on that and we ended up with lots of them. It's an interesting thing working with partners because, for instance, Ken and Maxine are very different. They were great partners to each other in producing because they each had different skills and Ken was always the, the front man. But the same thing was true with Warren and Jim in that Warren wrote most of the novelty songs, as they called them. And Jim wrote most of the things that are evocative of all the great 50s hits. But that quietness, et cetera, I don't know whether you got this far in the book, but when you do, there's a major fight. Many of us lose heart and hope in the whole production that Warren turned out to be the hero of, which was a pretty remarkable thing. And Pat, I just have to mention Pat, because Pat turned out to be one of the great creative relationships of my life. Actually, as a team, Ken and Maxine, Pat, me, and Louis St. Louis, we ended up being a real team that went on to do other things. But I also just have to pay a compliment to Ken because Ken really did have the vision. He was just as young as I was. And yet he had the ability to believe that he could make this a hit. And that's a major thing when you're working with creative people, because if you feel somebody believes in you, then you just keep producing because we all have doubts all our lives. But when you're that young, you really have doubts. And for some reason, Ken doesn't seem to have those. He just believes that he knows what the zeitgeist is interested in. And if he just keeps working at it, it'll happen. And in terms of Greece, it certainly did. But it's a pretty accurate story. One of the things that the agents for Jim and Warren kept pushing for was Michael Bennett because it's Michael Bennett. Even right. then, even yeah. then, he was Michael Bennett. But there are two different versions of what happened because according to Jim and Warren, who also had been searching for directors even before they went with Ken and Maxine, supposedly Michael Bennett said to them, this is not right for me. I just do tits and feathers. And Ken said, that can't be accurate because that's not what he did. Do you know what I mean? But right. it was the funny line. For a while, we had that in the book, and then we took it out. One of the things I've told people is that we tried as hard as we could to have accuracy, but when you're doing eight years' history and eight different companies' history and molding and melding them into Broadway during those eight years, with some of them playing Broadway, then going back out on tour, then coming back in, et cetera, et cetera, there would be oftentimes different views of when they were where when. And I said, here's the deal. Once the book is published, that is the history. (laughs) Period. 
there'll be things written about Greece forever, but I don't think there'll be anything this comprehensive. Yeah, the Michael Bennett story. Uh, yes, Bridget Ashtonberg at ICM, who was their official agent, Jimmy Warren's official agent, was really pushing for Michael Bennett. So finally, Maxine had worked with him on Joyful Noise, which she was assistant to the director there. And so she picked up the phone and she called him. She says, Michael, we're just getting constant push from Bridget Ashtonberg about your doing Grease. You're directing and choreographing it. And she said, you know what our concept is? He said, no, I don't. He said, we're just going to have the principal characters. There's not going to be any chorus, dancing chorus or anything like that. Each character who will be cast because they're actors and singers and can move. And then they'll be made into dancers. And he said, well, I don't work that way. I said, would you please tell Bridget? So he said, okay. And that got her off our backs. But I mean, we would have these arguments and I would say, Bridget, and I was being sarcastic, Bridget, don't mention his name one more time unless you say ICM is going to put up all the money for this show. And then she'd say, we don't do that kind of thing. I said, and I would take it even if you did. <laughs> She always looked like somebody who came in from a windstorm with her hair. <laughs> you know, you mentioned that in the book. Favorite stories in the book. It's when Jim is talking about Warren and their discussion of whether to hire me. And he's and he turns to him at one point because they've been going back and forth and back and forth because they had a lot of experienced directors, certainly more experienced than I was, that they'd been considering. And it was their baby. And it did turn out to be the most important creative project of their lives. But Jim said, look, Warren, we like him. Let's go with him. You know, when we said we were going with two Jewish kids in New York to produce screen. I didn't think that was such a good idea either. So you you put this amazing team in place, Ken, but you need two things to put a show on. You need a theater and you need a cast. Let's start with the theater. You decide not to try to get a Broadway We're talking about creating a Broadway musical because I felt that it had those elements. And these guys, Jim and Warren, had the talent. But immediately, you know, the thought was, we're doing the rock and roll book musical. It's about 50s kids. The average age going to Broadway at that point was probably well into their 50s. And we didn't realize that they would embrace it because it was their high school days too and all of that. But we weren't thinking that at the time. We just thought it would be very tough to get a young audience that this show needs or we thought it needed by opening on Broadway just like that. But the cast was too big economically for what was available back then. 299 seat theaters, 199 and 299. They were the off-Broadway theaters and we couldn't make it work financially there. So there was a moment, you know, when it was sort of like, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden it hit me. The Eden Theater on 2nd Avenue and uh, 12th Street. Way, way back when I was in college at NYU, my first semester, I had uh, rented a room for part of that semester on 12th Street right near 2nd Avenue. And I remember that theater at that time had Ann Corio's This Was Burlesque and had been running forever. And I remember going over and getting a ticket for like the balcony and I'm sitting up there. Little did I know that that would be the birthplace of Broadway's Greece. But I remembered the theater, which I would pass every day. So suddenly it hit me, the Eden Theater. And I remembered that Once Upon a Mattress with Carol Burnett, years after I had lived in that neighborhood, had opened there. And also Man of La Mancha. We went down to see the owner at that time. It was available. In those days, theaters were available. You could find one. And we immediately gave him a check for a deposit and booked the theater. Shows are either blessed or they're not, I find. Some shows, every disaster that you can imagine happens. Star dies or somebody dies in the audience, which happened to a show that Tom and I did. And some shows are totally blessed. And you get cornered and then something happens. That happened many, many times during the Grease process. Because the Eden Theater was available, we were able to go and proceed. 
Next came the cast, and it's clear that Tom, Ken, and Grease's creative team had an incredible eye for talent. The future stars that emerged from the original Grease's Broadway run and touring casts include Adrian Barbeau, Barry Bostwick, Jeff Conaway, Carol Demas, Greg Evigan, Peter Gallagher, Richard Gere, Mary Lou Henner, Judy Kay, Rex Smith, Patrick Swayze, John Travolta, Treat Williams, and Adrian Zemed as well as the future Broadway directors Walter Bobby, Scott Ellis, and Jerry Zachs. Has any other show produced that many stars? I don't think so. So don't go away. Right after this quick break, we'll find out exactly how that happened. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! Well, uh, I've been spending a lot of time hanging around down the beach. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? All right, all right, you guys. Hey, you want to know what happened? Yeah, come on! He knows how I got! All right. Well, I met a boy this summer. It was all very romantic. Oh, yeah. The show needed really good actors. They're going to make you think they're not actors. It needed really good singers. It's a musical, and they had to sing because the music demanded. And it had to be a dancing show. So that requires the kind of talent that we ended up with when we went through the casting. And Tom can talk about that. That made it obvious that a lot of them were going to become stars. They had that kind of talent. We had an advantage in that we were a show where people were just beginning their careers. So you actually got to meet them early on, whereas some other shows, of course, don't have that option because they might not even get into audition. But we, in the beginning, would see everybody, anybody that wanted to come. I mean, we would have equity auditions and then we 
we would have those open call auditions. And we found some of our cast from that. And Ken and Maxine were going downtown looking at people and they found our original Frenchie, Maria Small, down in one of the clubs singing, etc. But I do think it's because I think we have very good casting instincts. I, I just know we do. A good director will tell you that 90% of their work, I keep changing that percentage, goes up, but is casting because you can make a lot of mistakes and you can go in a lot of wrong directions if you have really talented actors. And we also were able to work as a team on that. That's one thing I trusted totally with my casting instinct, because if somebody didn't hold my attention, I always say to young actors, when I speak to them, I said, sometimes actors come into room and they literally suck up the air in the room and you're exhausted before they even begin. And then other people come in and you can't wait to spend time with those people. So that's the first step. I may have been a little pretentious in asking them to do a Shakespearean scene along with comedy scene, etc. I was finding out what they could do and how they worked with someone because that was as crucial too. And when you find that, when you find that kind of collaboration, it's quite thrilling. And we were collaboration in terms of Ken and Maxine and Pat and I in particular. I mean, we were the ones overseeing it. And of course, Louis St. Louis, bless his heart, who's no longer with us. Greece's music director, Louis St. Louis, was also its dance arranger and vocal arranger. And he would perform all of those roles later on the Broadway musicals Over Here and Smokey Joe's Cafe. He was also the music supervisor for the film of Greece and wrote many of the songs for the movie Grease 2. But it was very clear to everyone that acting came first, that if they couldn't cut that, they couldn't do it. Singing was definitely second, because that's obviously terribly important for the music. But dancing, one of the brilliant things about Pat Birch is that she can make dancers out of non-dancers. I mean, it's almost a cliche now, because a lot of people try to do that. But there weren't too many people doing that, if anybody, when Pat's career was just starting. And it would be amazing to watch her, actually. In the process, we would have endless auditions. We were nothing if not thorough. And we'd keep bringing them back and back. Although, as Ken reminded me, you can only have three before you have to pay them. But then the final part of their audition was that they came to a dance audition. And sometimes it happened in the same day. Sometimes it was two days later. But they were unusual in that everybody was all together. Usually, I think it's downright cruelty to put actors in the same room where other people are doing their parts, but it's the only way we could do this. So they're up on the stage and doing these things together. And so Pat will do an improv on the stroll, for instance. As Walter Bobby so cleverly talks about in the book, he knows that this is where you are allowed to shine. Barry Boswick says this too. I knew that my part depended on my making an impression during the stroll. So the stroll becomes legendary in some of these actors' minds in terms of their career. But those were thrilling for me as a director because I got to sit back and really watch how actors worked. And Pat moved so fast. And some of these non-dancers had no idea what they were doing. And she would let them go and let them fumble. And she would say, use that, use that, do that. Come down through the stroll using that movement. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't dance moves. It was just what they did as a person. Sometimes it was the shyness, et cetera. I think those were some of the most thrilling times of Greece throughout for all of our companies because you knew you were discovering something. And you really did know with some people immediately they were going to be a star. Like, for instance, there are many versions of John Travolta's audition. He tells one, I tell one, everybody who was in the room tells another one because, of course, everyone wants to be a part of this discovery of this major star. But my 
my memory of John, and as I recall, it was backstage at the Greek Theater here in Los Angeles. And he came in, it seems to me it was a rainy day, although maybe I've made that poetic because it just seemed good. But he came in and his audition was all over the place, just all over the place. Do you know what I mean? Because he was really young. He was 18 years old. He was much younger than anybody else we were even considering. But you knew, you knew that this was something. There was a presence here. There was something that needed to be followed. It's one of the things I think I'm good at is recognizing that. Give them another chance. I think one of the things that is really too bad now is so many auditions are being done by tape. And the director said doesn't have a chance to say, that's great, but it's not really what I'm thinking of. Could you try this? A slight alteration can sometimes set a really good actor on amazing paths because only good actors will make terrible mistakes. That's just a fact because they're willing to go there in John's case and many others. Just saying a couple of things and then as he came back he was feeling more confident. We knew his manager so we were able to encourage him that way. But you just knew you never stopped watching him. And Patrick Swayze, sometimes you miss him. Like Ken and I and Max and everybody. The first time with Patrick Swayze because he had such a thick Texan accent. We let it go. And there was a friend of his in the cast, somebody that he had gone up to outside the stage door, Ray De Mattis, who played Roger at that point, and said, well, you help me on this part. And he became his guardian angel. And he just kept pushing us. He said, you need to see this guy again. And indeed, when he came back in, Ken turned and said, that guy's going to be a star. He was one of the last Zucos to take over. But casting stories, John Travolta, he was determined to be in Greece. He had been bothering our casting directors in New York about auditioning. They thought he was too young. Now he happens to be in L.A. when he finds out that we're doing auditions out there. He went to their office and they still wouldn't let him audition. So he said, can I work in the office and, you know, I'll volunteer here. I can type up the sides. Oh, sure. You know, that was okay. Then he said, could I read with the people who are auditioning? And okay, sure. So he came in and I remember that when he came in and he was reading with somebody. And then, so charming that he is, he got them to finally say, okay, you can audition. So when he walked out on the stage to audition for us, as Tom said, all over the place and everything else, that was one of those cases where you see this persona and you say, he may not be here, but he's going to have a career. Something's going to happen here. I didn't think so much of it he's going to have a career as he'll be able to do this part. (laughs) Well, that's what you were thinking, yes. You know what I mean? I mean, I didn't go to that vision. Later on, I was asked at Time Magazine back when he first became a big star, and I said, there was something about John, and I used the phrase, he created a vacuum, a vacuum that needed John Travolta, and then he stepped right into that vacuum. And I don't said that about anyone else, but wow. It seems accurate to me. But uh, we now we talked about three auditions after that you have to pay. We had John come in for a fourth because it was worth the pay. And Tom wanted to make sure that he'd be consistent because he was not a Broadway performer or anything like that. And it's important that you can play eight performances a week and keep it up. And on the road. And on the road yet, yeah. Initially, he's cast as duty, though. Is that correct? Right. Not only initially, that was his place in this show. People don't know this about John as much now, but he's one of the funniest guys ever. He'll say anything. He is an incredible entertainer. And of course, then he became known for serious things or leading man things. And a lot of that disappeared. But I happened to see a clip just recently of Welcome Back, Cutter. I think it's a pretty terrible show, but he's amazing. Just amazing. Well, of course, the two of you cast him in Over Here after Greece, which I saw that show. And I remember vividly him in the show, not knowing who he was, of course. But right. again, playing a very sort of goofy, goofy well, character. Actually, he was playing yeah. a Jerry Lewis type part. Dream drumming 
I'm another Krupa heading up a super band And I'm the leader man, say I'm Dream drumming Jumping in the spotlight, jiving nice and hot right now We're dressed in drape shape uniforms We're blowing horns that shine I'm hitting licks like no one's hit The world is hearing me, cheering me on and on Say I'm dream drumming I'm another Krupa heading up super band now, somebody said to me recently when I mentioned that he's basically a comedian, we cast him in over here for a Jerry Lewis kind of part, sort of. And that's where the producers of Cotter found him. They happened to come see the show. And they said to me, really? But he's a sex symbol. He's one of those Saturday Night Fever. I said, that's called acting. Well, it's also something more with John. I mean, actors have a way of becoming what they want to become. And they have a way of becoming what we all want. Uh, especially young male actors. They just instinctively know how to go there. And he did it. I mean, one of the things he says in the book, I was constantly surprised by things that were said in the book, I had moments that I was around. But he mentions that after his first performance, that I told his manager that he looked like a young, sexy French movie star. And he remembers that to this day. I don't remember saying that, but it's true. He did. He had that. So there were all those things. And maybe that's why he became such a colossal star. Now with Richard Gear, we had another interesting casting story. Jeff Conaway was Barry Boswick's understudy. We wanted Jeff Conaway to go out on the road and play Danny Zuko, so we needed a new understudy. We're auditioning all these people. Fresh off the bus from college, in walks Richard Gere. He gives a very good reading, and he has a great voice, terrific voice. Linda Otto, our casting director, said, would you wait, please, because we're going to do a dance audition afterwards. So we go through all the other people, and now it's time for the uh, dance audition. Stage manager calls everybody out. Pat comes down to the stage. There's no Richard Gere. He had walked out. So we said, well, you know, screw him. That's it. But then Linda turned to me and she said, Ken, something's wrong because we've had him audition since he moved here on some other things and he's been fine. Can I talk to him? I said, sure, go ahead. So she calls me and she says, listen, he panicked. He had never been in a dance audition. He doesn't think he can move at all. So he panicked and he left. Can I bring him back? I said, sure. We're all there. He brings him back. Pat starts working with him. He's fine. And of course, she can get it out of anybody, but he was fine. So we hired him as the understudy. Then what happened was we could not find a Danny Zuko that we all agreed upon for London. We were doing the West End production. And we had been auditioning and auditioning and auditioning. And we had put the whole cast together. And my co-producer over there, Paul Elliott, was setting it all up. We were supposed to go into rehearsals the following Monday. We still don't have a Danny. So I said, listen, here's the solution. Our understudy here in New York. He's a terrific Danny. I understand that British Act Week will allow, under certain circumstances, someone from America to come over for six months. I said, so can we do that? At least we'll get the production started. So he calls British Equity and they say, absolutely not. So I said to Paul, okay, Paul, we are not comfortable with any of those choices. We're not. Tom is not happy. I'm not happy. Pat's not happy. Jim and Warren were not that happy either. I said, so I cannot approve you're going into rehearsal. I can't approve the second person on the list there. He said, but all the kids have made plans. They've all signed contracts. They've adjusted their lives. I said, that's not my problem. That's British equities. So he said, could you send me a telegram to that effect, canceling everything? I said, sure. So I did. By the end of that day, I get a call from Paul. 
British equity has changed their minds. You can bring over your New York understudy. That wasn't yay, 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 because now Richard Gere's manager tells us that he doesn't want to go. He said, he doesn't want to leave here. Can this an opportunity? He doesn't want to be locked away on the West End. I said, why don't you say starring on the West End? Stanley Zuko. Sorry, he doesn't want to do it. Now, here's how dumb that manager was. Richard is working for us. He's at the Royale Theater every night. So I turned to Tom. Tom was here in New York. I turned to Tom. I said, Tom, this is the dumbest person I've ever heard of. I said, tonight, why don't you go over to the Royale and sit down with Richard? Calls me afterwards. He says, Richard knew nothing about this. He said, of course he wants to do it. Now, the partner of this manager, Yvette Schumer, who was a respected manager and all of that, but she happened to get herself in with this drunk guy. She called me in a panic. Richard is so upset. He didn't know that you had offered him blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm sorry, because I told my co-producer he could hire the second person on the list. She said, well, what do we do? You call him, will you do? I said, I don't trust you guys. He never even told Richard of the offer. You better do a telegram right Right now and hope that Paul Elliott gets it before he goes ahead with that other person we authorized. There was no other person, but <laughs> I was so angry. And she, okay, okay. So, and I was right about her sending the telegram because then it would be official. So she right. did it and Richard went into the show. Now it's a few days before opening night. I'm walking through Chelsea and I bump into Phil D'Antoni and his wife, the producer of The French Connection. What are you doing in London? He says to me. I said, uh, we're opening Greece on the West End. Thursday night, why don't you come? Oh, we'd love to. And so they came. After the show, they were madly in love with Richard. He was instrumental in getting Richard his first TV movie. That last story of Ken's, that's quintessential Ken Weissman. By just saying, this is the bottom line. You either do it or you don't, even though you have nothing to back it up in the background. It's worked for him over and over. It's the chutzpah with which you proceed to speak as if this is absolute truth. That is always amazing. Sometimes I literally remember looking over and thinking, what is he talking about? We got seven Tony nominations. Absolutely. That's another story. We're about to get to that part of the story, but I'm afraid you'll have to wait for the next episode of Broadway Nation to hear it. Next time, Tom and Ken will share stories of how together they guided the authors in trimming Grease's original phone book-sized script and overloaded score down to the show that we know now. And they'll also relate the myriad changes that went into the show during its tumultuous preview period and how what became for a time the longest-running show in Broadway history almost closed right after its opening night. Before I was born, late one night My papa said In the meantime, if you're in New York, there are two Greece-related events happening at Feinstein's 54 Below this coming week, including on June 6, when Mary Lou Henner will host a 50th anniversary celebration featuring Jim Jacobs, Carol Demas, Judy Kay, and other Greece alumni. And then on June 8th, Mary Lou Henner will perform a solo show at 54 Below. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help in editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 